Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the second of our wonderful mystery tour of the alphabet. You know, we don't do things A, B, C, American history tour. We are going from C to H. Yep, indeed, not for us, the simplicity of starting at A and ending in Z. Oh, no, 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 we're going to take a wild tour around the alphabet and American history at the same time. So we're on H today, as you commented. Yes. Shall we make a start? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's get fired right into it. We have the woolly hat again. No, the the hand-knitted hand woolen hat of American history A to Z. Uh-huh, and here we go. What's our first one? Off, starting the timer, 30 minutes. Fanny Lou Hamer. Fanny Lou Hamer. Gigantic figure in American civil rights history and post-1945 history in general. Famous for her speech of she's sick and tired of being sick and tired, reflecting just the sheer grinding relentlessness of racism in America uh, and expressing, you know, and it's a speech I use in teaching because you can just hear how how pissed off Fanny Lou Hamer is in that speech about the condition that African Americans find themselves in in the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, so she was a, she was a co-founder of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, um, which famously um, tried to be seated at the 1964 Democratic Convention. They got a compromise where two of the delegates would seat and still all the white delegations stormed off in protest. How dare they get a couple of seats? Um, nobody was happy. Um, but, I mean, there is some truly... Shocking stuff around Fannie Lou Hamer. I mean, she was part of, you know, what was a, a shockingly large number of African American women who were sterilized um, without their knowledge in the in the Deep South um, back in the day when she was going in for a routine surgery. The doctor, the white doctor, sterilized her at the same time. But I mean, she was an incredibly impressive figure. She also like crusaded for women's rights mm-hmm. as well as African American yeah. rights and. Uh, perhaps most harringly was was uh, when she was you know they were on a, a civil rights um, venture and she was seized by Mississippi police and beaten to within an inch of her life and I don't think she ever truly recovered from the injuries and she ended up dying quite young actually but an inspirational figure and she got I mean, and, and in like her second third second third speech she talks about that experience of the brutality of racism in America yeah good place to start Fanny Lou Hamer. Yep, amazing figure in American history. Right, what comes up next? Drum roll. And up next we have the man who is now sadly uh, in charge of only America's second most corrupt administration. It's Warren G. Harding. Oh, big return to normalcy, Harding. Return to normalcy, excellent voyage of understanding. Yes, I mean, you you could talk a lot about Warren Harding. I mean, you could talk about the fact that well, historians think he's one of the worst presidents ever. 
the people actually loved him. Like he was one of the most popular presidents ever. Um, before he died in office of a cerebral hemorrhage, if I mentioned, you could discuss the corruption, you could discuss the teapot dome scandal, you could discuss all those things. But what everybody is thinking about when you think of Warren Harding is his love letters to his mistress, which who he kept as a mistress throughout the entirety, um, I believe was the presidency. And in these letters, just to give a sneak, sneak preview, um, he refers to his penis as Jerry. And his, uh, he uses code words for a lot of things in case these were intercepted. And his mistress as Mrs. Powterson. Um, and that is just uh, the beginning of the tawdriness of Warren G. Harding. Welcome to American History 2, After Dark. <laughs> um, I don't really have anything to add. Other, other than that, a book I thoroughly enjoyed uh, that featured Warren G. Harding was uh, a book about stage magicians in early 20th century America called Carter Beats the Devil by Glenn David Gold and it features the Harding administration and the corruption and the voyage of understanding and and Harding's love life mm. as a kind of background mm-hmm. uh, to this story of of stage magicians and illusionists and vaudeville and all these things it's a very very entertaining book and kind of gives a good sense of the milieu that, of what the Harding administration existed in I would heartily recommend it yeah well if you want to know more about Harding um, if you don't feel like we've covered enough the Harding Memorial Project I believe in Marion are doing a Harding 2020. Um, so visit Marion, Ohio for all your Harding needs next year. Uh, it'll be 100 years since they won the election. Yes, one, do not walk. Okay, I feel like, I feel like we've done enough right, Harding, right, that's Harding. Um, for, for the rest of the podcast life. Here we go. Okay. I can't imagine which way you'll go with this. Hoover, brackets, whichever. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between the president, the director of the FBI... Or the cleaning implement. Mm. Which one? I've got to go for J. Edgar. Yeah, that, that was... So, I mean, there you go. I mean, J. Edgar, I mean, as presidents and everything aside, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was a man who bestrode the American political and cultural scene for decades. You know, he was, you know, in office to the, from the you know, 1930s, I think, to the 1972? When he finally left so office, he's right. head director of the FBI for so long. It had such a, a vast influence on American politics and American you know, social affairs. The Red Scare, he was part of the original first Red Scare under Attorney General Mitchell Palmer. But then the second Red Scare, he was really, you know, many historians have commented that really... McCarthyism isn't really an appropriate term. It should be called Hooverism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but also, I think, relating it to more recent historiography, his long-running and his agency's long-running uh, campaign of homophobic persecution under the so-called Sex Deviates program, mm-hmm. uh, which was decades-long program of uh, persecuting homosexuals in government service and everyday life. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read about that, Doug Charles's book, uh, Hoover's War on Gays is fantastic. It is an amazing work of research because the sex deviates file was destroyed in the 1970s. They destroyed all the files and Doug Charles has managed to effectively reconstruct the primary sources of this, uh, this program. So yeah. And, and, by, and uh, yeah, my final thing to add is read the book rather than watch a film about Hoover because apparently, I think I got 10 minutes into it and everyone I've ever heard that's actually watched the, the biopic about Hoover is one of the dullest films ever made about anyone. Which is quite impressive given 
you know, what you've just outlined about Hoover the person. And there was no evidence to support the accusations of transvestitism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So There's no evidence. So lots of problems are a bit dull. Don't yep. watch it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, a lot more boring than you think. Yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, next up, oh, another major figure, another man, unfortunately, <laughs> this is three men in a row, uh, Hitler, Adolf. <laughs> I was part of me was thinking you just have Hitler and you get to pick which Hitler you you can have but okay Adolf Hitler yeah so Hitler obviously in the context of of America so Hitler had this kind of weird from what we can tell sort of dual view of America like on one hand he he viewed it as a mongrel nation he's had some quote about the fact that you know you send a German to Kiev and he remains a German send a German to Florida or to Miami and he becomes, you know, I can't, I can't remember his exact word, but basically implying that miscegenation happened in America, so therefore the purity of the races was diluted. He also, on the other hand, really admired how America was initiating its white power structure mm. um, and the segregation that was keeping on there. Um, and then, bizarrely enough, and I have, like, I've tried to figure this out from extensive Googling, and I can't figure out if it's a load of nonsense or not. But there's some sort of discussion... By extensive Googling, you mean in-depth academic research. Exactly. Um, That Hitler, one, seems to have viewed the Native Americans as part of the Aryan race. A part of this is to do with the fact that he read a load of books where Native Americans were the hero, and Native Americans actually occupy this really interesting place in German culture. Now, I can't can't, like say this is definitely true. I haven't found anything to actually controvert it, but... Well, I mean, the, the trouble is that the idea of the Aryan race is bunk. Well, and, and they would fit anyone into it as long as it fitted with their political ideology. So it's, yeah, it's all... You know, yeah, is there anything to Hitler in America? Of bunk. Uh, he was quite popular with a lot of Americans. Mm. Uh, you know, there were a lot of Nazi sympathisers in America in the 1930s and even into the 1940s. Well, in the 1960s, and you're looking at the civil rights movement, there's people walking around with the Nazi sympathisers. The American Nazi Party. Party. Yeah. But, you know, prior to, to World War II, you have major uh, American figures like Henry Ford. Yeah. Was an admirer of... Charles Lindbergh. Of Adolf Hitler, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, which, you know, that leads to another, you know, recommendation. You know, the novel Philip Roth. And his novel, The Plot Against America, which is being made, I think, by HBO, perhaps, into a mini-series about Charles Lindbergh becoming president of the United States and the problems that creates for the Jewish population in the United States. Do you know, actually, fun little personal anecdote on that, um, I once decided, to, when audiobooks first became a thing on your iPhone, so I decided to download one for a very long trip that I had to do, and I downloaded one on Roosevelt and Lindbergh, and I got about 10 minutes into it until I realised that our extreme right-winger had written this book, and that Roosevelt was the bad guy. Ah, <laughs> Charles right. Lindbergh, um, purity symbol of the Aryan race, was actually yes, the yes. good guy. So, uh, You're born yeah. purity symbol of the Aryan race. <laughs> okay, so moving on then. We have Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper, mm. the, jur- the the great journalist and, and actress of one time as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Speaking of right wing figures at this point, what was the name of the TV series that was on recently? It was about the conflict between uh, Joan Crawford and Bette Davis. Uh, with uh, Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon uh, playing the two leads, and uh, Hedda Hopper. 
crops up in that as a confidant and gossip columnist and all that kind of thing. It was interesting to see her you know, taking that sort of central role in a popular cultural mm-hmm. depiction of the United States. But yeah, I mean hugely influential in terms of her her role within the how to describe it properly? Her, what's the role within the media? Well, if you, want, if you want to word her role within McCarthyism, you know, I know that's not what you're going for. I was going mean, to come to that. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, linking back to Hooverism or McCarthyism, you know, she was, she was read by something like 30, 40 million people in the 1940s and she basically was the female Ronald Reagan in Hollywood and <laughs> went, went about, like, sort of outing people that she suspected to be um, communists. I think she was, um, was Ingrid Berman or something that she implicated so often in her columns um, for being a communist that um, Ingrid Berman ended up on the Hollywood blacklist? Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, interesting figure. It, it ties back to the as you were saying the Hoover thing because you know of her, you know, naming names people she suspected of being communists or homosexual. Mm-hmm. Which she also didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, another another figure involved in that era. Yeah, and and to also to tie into Hitler, she was called a Nazi by people. So you know, there we God, go. this, this is all coming together. Uh, no, not even planned. Head of Hopper. What's up next? Hip hop. Mark, <laughs> you have a strong grasp of popular culture. That could not be less true. Um, well, I mean. <clears throat> So the one thing, like, for all the reading I've never done, I've never quite managed to separate hip-hop from rap. In do, my, do you want me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 Is rap the politicised version? No, 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 no. no, no. 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 So uh, hip-hop is the overall culture. Mm-hmm. And hip-hop is made up of four elements. Mm-hmm. So MCing, mm-hmm. or rapping. DJing. B-boying, which involves breakdancing. And graffiti. So rap is one of the elements of hip, one of the four elements of I can't hip-hop. believe no one has ever explained it in such a basic way. No, I so, understand. But, but yeah, I mean, the the one thing I mentioned on previous episodes, teaching course, courses on the 80s, you know, is just how prominent, you know, hip-hop rap becomes um, in, the, in the 1980s and just sort of how it reflects the urban decay and the struggles that African Americans are going through in, in the nation's cities, you know, you see it on from the East Coast in New York City, Brooklyn, the Bronx and all that, and then also coming out the West Coast with acts like God I'm forgetting their name now. Straight this NWA straight up Compton. There we go. Well done, Mark. Yeah, yeah, well so. done. I was, I was gonna let you struggle yeah, for a moment yeah, yeah. there. But well I mean see so one of the other fascinating part, you know, parts of it, one of the four elements that I've always liked the most about hip hop is DJ. You know, the... Says the former DJ. This, no, no, also no, available for hire. Uh, for the right uh, you know, so, you know, you know, scratching and beat matching and transforming and all of these kind of, you know, stuff that, and you, you, if you listen to kind of interviews with so many key figures in the history of, of DJing, it comes back to, this wasn't the first time scratching was used, but, uh, you know, Herbie Hancock's Rocket and, that was the first big, big hit that you that, that scratching was an important part of. And if you watch documentaries like Doug Prey's documentary Scratch, which is all about the history of hip hop DJing, and every you know, they, they go through everyone and say, "What was your real first exposure? What was the thing that they were like Rocket, Herbie Hancock, and all that kind of thing?" So there was you know one of those things that you know, suddenly everyone wanted a set of Technics, mm-hmm. you know, turntables. Including a little boy in Falkirk. Including a little boy in Falkirk. <laughs> but this, this leads to another thing. Is that why is, uh, uh, 
middle class white boy in Falkirk, why did I love Public Enemy and Sets of Sonic and all these bands? Why did I love? Why did I like them so much? What did it say to me? I had none because of that experience of oppression and discrimination. Well, I some, some would say that Falkirk is grimmer than Compton. It's not. <laughs> I, I never suffered any discrimination or oppression in my life. Uh-huh. So. It, but it's fascinating why well, it must have been good music but go. it was and Public Enemy one yeah. of the greatest bands ever yeah. there you go cool oh okay Hamilton it is not specified whether it is the musical the man or you know this probably the, the place the, 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 the town in Lanarkshire <laughs> uh, where my grandfather worked as a building services engineer for Strathclyde Council did he have his leg Sawed off. You know, he wasn't. No, that was my on my dad's side. My great grandfather had his legs sawn off in China without anaesthetic. Is this going to come up in every single episode? <laughs> uh, no, uh, but Hamilton. So Alexander Hamilton. Wow, talk about a renaissance. I was going to say figure. I, I think I think in I popular terms. Him because like I remember teaching. You know, where this podcast comes from American history too, and it starts all the way back in the Revo- revolution. And like the most things I remember reading about Alexander Hamilton was that he's a bit of a, a bit of a twat. Like we were basically not a very nice guy. He seemed to, if I remember correctly, has some sort of Scottish roots via Jamaica or something as well. Yeah. Um, and just not an all round, not very nice fellow. And now he is centre member of the great liberal... Well, <laughs> like, no, I, like, I'm not sure that's the argument that's being made. I mean, I think no, 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 I don't, I just mean like it's, that's people that mostly want to go see Hamilton, isn't the it? Music, people yeah, that yeah. Are, that, yeah. But, uh, but I think, you know, you know, the, the creators of the, of the musical acknowledge that, you know, Hamilton is a problematic. Mm-hmm. I think what they've done with it is, is amazing in terms of their representation of that era in American history and the way that it's, it's presented is, is fantastic. But, I mean, over the past decade, suddenly Hamilton is this huge pop cultural figure. Mm-hmm. You know, Aaron Burr? Not so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Getting killed in a jail doesn't mean you're. You it know, doesn't, mean you're, a, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Hellcat. Okay, so this is one where I'm not going to pretend. I'm just going to throw this straight back to you because I know it is some sort of. Am I right saying it's a fighter plane? Um, and as someone who is incredibly bored by military hardware, I'm going to give you a minute to make it interesting to me. So Hellcat, uh, it was actually the, the code name for a Marvel superhero uh, who first, uh, well, it was actually a character called Patsy Walker who appeared in the 1940s. In I can't remember. Was there not also a, a fighter plane? Hang on, I'm coming. <laughs> uh, and I think the comic was called. It was it was aimed at uh, uh, young women, and it was called Miss America or something. I'm not very good on comics history, uh, but in the 1970s, she was kind of like reimagined as as this superhero called Hellcat. Uh, and coincidentally, Hellcat also happens to be something that comes up a lot, and it's it's one of those terms. There's so many. Like, you know, high school and college sporting teams called the Hellcats mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. Yes, the Grumman F6F Hellcat was a naval fighter plane in World War II, very successful naval fighter plane. At the same time, the Army also had a Hellcat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the M18 tank destroyer was called the Hellcat as well. And currently in America, you can buy cars that are called Hellcat. Uh, the Dodge Charger and Challenger, the most powerful versions of them, 
have an engine in them called the Hellcat. Somehow that's the least surprising thing I've ever seen. It's, it's something like 700 horsepower or something like that. In a car <laughs> you can just walk into a dealership and buy, which is insane. Oh. Uh, anyway, there you go. So Hellcats in American history. Okay. Well, moving on from Hellcats to Happy Days. Happy Days. Monday, that, Tuesday. That weird 1970s representation of an imagined 1950s America with... People who are too old, too old to play teenagers playing teenagers. Mm-hmm. Happy Days is kind of odd that Ron Howard is an actor rather than a director. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we know him as Apollo 13 and yeah. all these kind of things. But so Happy Days is that really odd kind of thing in that, I, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this. Is it a, a way of, in a period where America is going through the trauma of of Vietnam, of Watergate, of the perceived decline of the 1970s, that where is America's place in the world? Is a happy day, is happy days trying to say, hey, let's look back to this imagined 1950s where everything was great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way you could take it is this sort of where the 1950s would end up in American popular memory. You know, like when people, you know, to relate it to when Donald Trump was saying make America great again and everybody's like, when is Trump talking about? And most people decide that he's talking about the 1950s, you know, like because this is this imagined space when everything was calm. We had Levittown, we had Blissful Suburbia, Eisenhower was in the White House just presiding calmly over everything. Um, and as you said, you didn't have Vietnam, you didn't have those pesky civil rights protesters making gains, um, you didn't have all the division that would follow that. So the 1950s was that period of camp. The other funny thing though about Happy Days is the fact that there is, it went on I love so it's a period of camp. With the overweening threat of nuclear <laughs> war in the, in the background, you know. Narratives are narratives, Malcolm. Yeah, we all uh, love a good narrative. Um, but the, the other funny thing about Happy Days is the fact that it went on so long and became so crap that it birthed a saying called jumping Jump the, the shark. shark because it, When like, Fonzie water skiing jumps over a shark. Yeah, and yeah. at that point people are like, you've gone too far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think our podcast jumped the shark quite a long time ago. <laughs> okay, so the next one we have up for H is a periodical I know you enjoy, Mark. Human Events. The magazine Human Events. I, I have had a subscription since I was a child. No, um, yeah, Human Events is a conservative um, magazine that has been around for a long time. Nineteen four. 30s, 40s. It's been around for, for a long, long time. Yeah. And during its time, it has varied in seriousness and wackiness. Um, and perhaps the, the way it is best known is the fact that Ronald Reagan uh, loved a good issue of human events. Uh, so I suppose the way you could sort of put it is that it's kind of a forerunner for Breitbart, only not quite, I don't, I don't think it, maybe not quite as wacky. That's been a bit harsh in human events, yeah, actually. Um, but be it, the, the sort of story goes that Ronald Reagan's aides used to try and hide the copies of human events from him because they were worried they would read it and get ideas from it. Um, so, I mean, I haven't actually looked into the depth of the history of it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it grew out of some sort of John Burke Society element, but again, I might be wrong about that. Um, as far but, as- but I actually looked at, I looked at its headlines recently, and both of them were about how big tech is preventing conservatives from winning. So, so it's very much in the conspiracy. Well, it's now only available online. They've stopped mm. printing it. So my favourite human events thing is actually much more recent. It was from the early 2000s when they compiled a list of the most 10 most dangerous books ever, ever printed. Oh. Which is great. You yeah. can could, could see it coming. So number one, clearly the Communist Manifesto. Obviously. Who would have seen that one coming? Number two, Mein Kampf. Okay. Hardly anyone's actually read Mein Kampf. Let's I'll give them uh, that one. 
And you you can see kind of like so they go through kind of like you know quotations in Chairman Mao. I can see where they're coming from yeah. from their, their political point of view. Number four, the Kinsey report. I'm like, that's weird. That shows a weird kind of obsession. It was a panel. Wait, wait, was was the Kinsey report on sexual? I would, yeah, but sexuality sexual, in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, blah blah blah. Das Kapital. Betty Friedan is the feminine mystique. You're like, <laughs> like, okay, I can see where you're coming from now. I can kind of understand that, you know. Uh, At least they're putting their cards on the table. They don't like Nietzsche. They don't like John Maynard Keynes. But what's more interesting is also the honourable mention section. Okay. The stuff that didn't quite make it into the top ten. And, you know, some of it you're like, okay, because of the politics of human events, you can see where they're coming from. But some of them are just like Michel Foucault. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. The environmental texts. Yeah, absolutely. But my favourite one in there, I'm thinking, whoa. France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. I have no idea what that is. A black Caribbean man writing about the decolonising struggles of black people. Or not black people, it's about uh, the Algerian uh, civil, uh, the Algerian war mm. with France, the decolonizing war with France, when France was brutally trying to hold on to Algeria. Mm. And Fanon was a doctor from Martinique, I think he was from, and he went over there, and because of his experiences, he wrote The Venture of the Earth, which is the foundational text in post-colonial studies. Cool. At, so, this, at this point, I feel like human events is jumped to shark. Human, so. human, human <laughs> events is like, so you object to a black man writing about the struggles of brown people to free themselves from a Brutal colonial power. Ha! Yeah, okay. Not a big fan of Nelson Mandela's The Road to Freedom. Either. Probably not, no, no. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, to another important uh, uh, black figure, Jimi Hendrix. What can you say about Jimi Hendrix? I'm actually... Really I'm, no, it's actually one of those difficult things. How do you... It's like Fanny Lou Hamer or things like How do you distill down the contribution of Jimi Hendrix to popular yeah. culture well, into... I mean, I, I can yeah. talk about the one event that always comes to mind for me, from a, which yeah. is, you know, the, the Woodstock, um, when he gets up and it's Monday morning, like most of the people have gone. Like Woodstock was actually a shambles in terms yeah. of organisation. People had already done all their drugs, they'd ran out, they'd gone back to, you know, the, the nice places wherever they lived in New York. And uh, Jimi Hendrix is on at like nine in the morning or something like that. Something crazy like that. Uh, and he gets up there and he plays this version of the Star Spangled Banner with, which makes it sound as if planes are coming, to, like bombs are coming. Yeah. Obviously during the height of the Vietnam War, Hendrix himself is a former soldier and he meets this huge blowback from people who are like, you're disrespecting our anthem. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he actually, I think he goes on talk shows and stuff and he actually says, I thought it was a beautiful rendition, you know, I was actually <laughs> trying to pay respect to the yeah. flag. And uh, I mean, he dies not long thereafter. Yeah, He's yeah. one of the victims of the sort of turn towards hard drugs that that is happening among musicians at this time. But yeah, I mean, one of the greatest guitarists that ever was from everything I've ever heard or read. Well, his, I mean, yeah, he's, I mean, he was not the only person to kind of like, to do the electric guitar kind of thing, but his, in many ways, reinvention of the, of the playing of the guitar, not just, you know, as, as more than just an instrument, the mm-hmm. way in which he created sound from it is, uh, yeah, I mean, his stuff is still, still brilliant. I mean, one of my favourite films is, uh, is the British comedy from the 1980s, With Noel and I. And that, because it's set in 1969. It features Hendrix so much. So many of the iconic scenes in that film are well, Hendrix lived over here for a yeah, while. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. And are set to the tune of Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. 
you know, voodoo china, uh, particularly. And it's just, you know, it's, it's those, you know, tunes that have such resonance in so many, in film and in, in not just in music mm-hmm. and everything as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, wasn't even born when Hendrix was around, but yeah. his music still has great, you know, great resonance. Uh, Hubert Humphrey. From the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, uh, do you know, I view Hubert Humphrey as one of the most tragic politicians there ever has been. Like, I, I, I like him more than most politicians I've ever read about. You know, he was a guy that gets up in 1948 in the Democratic Convention and tells the Democratic Party that they have to walk forth rightly into the bright light of civil rights or whatever it is he says. Um, way before it's fashionable to say it. Um, I think he's the Minneapolis mayor at that point. Yeah, that didn't, in the Senate. didn't go down well. It didn't go down well. Yeah. Obviously helps lead to the bolt of the Dixiecrats and everything yep. in forty. And he remains this sort of big liberal lion in the Senate. And he's made fun of it first and everything, and then he slowly establishes himself. And then Johnson just really, you know, makes Humphrey submit to him in every way. Johnson basically looks at what Kennedy did to him and went, well, I can do worse. (laughs) And just makes, like, shuts Humphrey out of everything. And then obviously he goes on to lose the 1968 election to to Richard Nixon. Um, And gets back in the Senate, and then not long after... Um, he dies um, from from cancer, I think it is. He dies off in the 1970s. And Humphrey's death, actually, at the end of the 1970s, is almost a sort of the death of a certain t- style of liberal. It was the end of the sort of New Deal, Great Society liberal, um, just as a like symbolic of the coming of the, the Reagan and even the Carter Democrats, you know, the, the shift in, in focus away. So, no, I mean, I, I, I just view... Humphrey's a bit of a tragic figure, just the, the way he ended up being, like you said, you know, from the sublime Blind to the ridiculous. ridiculous. Like, you know, he's sort of a bit of a figure of fun. Oh, yeah. Cool. And we are flying through these today. I know. Okay. Um, Hollywood. Crikey. Where do we, where do we go from there? Okay, okay. okay. I, I, so, I've got a big question when I ask Okay, so here's an interesting thing. So the original sign for Hollywood didn't say Hollywood. It said mm. Hollywoodland. Is it in property development? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, has Hollywood been a force for good or bad in American life? Define good or bad. That's that's a binary. It's impossible <laughs> to. You're you're setting up this dichotomous position where you can't actually answer that question. Has it been a force for good or bad? Can it not be both? I mean, that's what I mean. But this is the thing. I mean, how do you define? Are you using Hollywood to encompass the entirety of the American film industry? Mm. Yes. Well, it's both. Yeah. It's both. It's both good and bad because you know if we go to the well, let's continue with this thing about Hooverism and the blacklisting head of Hopper. You know the Hollywood Ten in nineteen forty seven because of HUAC and all these kind of things. That that Hollywood responded in different ways. There was one that was a turn towards conservatism by studio heads and various other figures and actors and all these things. You know Ronald Reagan, Sterling Hayden, figures like that who named names. But then you had a reaction from figures like Lorraine Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, who were like, no, this is wrong. This in itself is un-American. Mm-hmm. Now, all of these people are Hollywood, mm-hmm. but just which part do you think... The, re- the reason I ask the question is yeah. because in American life, Hollywood is an it. Like, as in, you, mm. know, you know, as someone who's researched a lot of the Republicans and the Conservative Party, you know, like, you know... The, 
well, they run against Washington more. They, you know, they almost run against Hollywood America. This idea of this liberal Hollywood. There's our last. That, that's uh, the timer gone off, so we'll finish uh, where we since we started. Um, so yeah, the I, I just find it really interesting how Hollywood, because as you point out, is such a multifaceted thing, has become this sort of stick to beat um, the left with. Um, as if everybody there is a lib- is, is a liberal or a I, left. Since Although it, I think they're probably uh, the majority are, so there's sort of a semblance of truth to it. There's also a semblance, I think, a touch of anti-Semitism to it. True. Um, I think since Hollywood became the the kind of the avatar for for cinema in America, you know, see, they're talking about the film industry, they're talking about cinema, they're talking about films in general. That that Hollywood is a Vorsnach test. In that you see in it what you want to see in it, mm-hmm. that it can be a very you can get films that are very liberal and progressive, and you can get films that are regressive, conservative, you know, whatever. You know, you you only need to look at one film, and this ties into anti-communism, I think, quite neatly. Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956. Some will argue that it represents a reaction to Huac against. McCarthyism, Hooverism, all that thing. But some people will argue that it is actually about promoting conservative values. And I think you look at the director, Don Siegel, who later went on to direct Dirty Harry. He's much more conservative in his politics, and I would agree with the conservative analysis mm-hmm. of it. But it is, what you, Hollywood is what you want to see in it. It's a Warsack test. It's an outlaw. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me, actually, of the amount of people who try to tell me I shouldn't like Forrest Gump because apparently it is a right-wing screen. And I've watched Forrest Gump about 40 times and I still don't feel more conservative just, than watching I, it. If I can just conclude my remarks, <laughs> I, I don't think you should not watch Forrest Gump because uh, of any political leanings it might have. I just think it's a terrible film. I know, but it's very mainstream, so that 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 would that would be the likely result of that. Right, very good, <laughs> excellent. Cool, but we're away to watch with Neil and I then, and uh, that will leave it. Um, so thank you very much for listening again, and we'll be back with God knows what letter of the alphabet. Yes, like se- like Sesame Street. The next episode will be brought to you by who knows what letter. <laughs> Cheers, bye. <laughs>